It's the evening of December the 27th, 1924. Yesterday's new moon is now a white sliver in the sky above Green Park, London. From time to time, thick, scudding clouds block out its meager light completely. A dark figure moves with silent but purposeful tread through the park. The figure slips through the bushes like a faint breeze heading for the affluent streets south of Piccadilly. Effortlessly scaling the perimeter railings to land with barely a sound, the figure merges with the shadows between two trees in the rear garden of a grand 18th century mansion adorned with columns and balconies. At the same time, a second silent figure, unbeknown to the first, has taken up position in the garden of a neighboring house. This is an eager 23-year-old copper called Robert Fabian. Fabian will go on to become one of the greatest detectives of Scotland Yard, rising to the rank of superintendent. In the 1950s, Fabian of the Yard, a popular TV show based on his exploits, will run for 36 episodes. But we join Fabian at the start of his career when he is a probationer detective. In his keenness to progress, he is engaging in a spot of extracurricular sleuthing in partnership with his friend and fellow detective, Tommy Symes. On their own initiative, the two young officers have been tracking a spate of burglars in the area. They've spotted a pattern in the wealthy houses targeted, with the thief alternating between the top end of Park Lane and this area around St. James's Street. Symes and Fabian calculate that it's this neighborhood's turn next. Earlier, Symes took up a position in Green Park Bandstand to watch for any suspicious activity in the park. Fabian chose to hide in the garden of 22 Arlington Road, also known as Wimborne House. The Ritz Hotel is its neighbor on one side. The young detective hears a faint sound behind him. He swivels round to see Symes, visible in the light from the back of the Ritz, gesturing for him to move. Symes doesn't say anything, but his meaning is clear. He spotted someone entering one of the other gardens. Placing a finger to his lips, Symes leads the way to the back garden of 25 St. James's Place, into which he saw the silent intruder slip a moment before. The two young detectives arrive just in time to hear the gong for dinner sound inside the building. One by one, the upstairs lights go out as the guests in their evening finery come down for dinner. At the same time, a streak of darkness rushes towards the house. A moment later, Fabian sees a man perched on one of the upper floor balconies. How did he get up there? Fabian holds his breath in amazement as the shadowy figure flits across the balustrade with the perfect poise and balance of a tightrope walker. Did you see that? Whispers Symes hoarsely, like a blooming cat. The two friends have to act quickly if they're to get their man. A natural leader, Fabian takes the initiative, telling Symes, I'll wait for him here, you give the alarm inside. Symes nods and rushes off. A moment later, Fabian sees the upstairs lights come back on in rapid succession 
as Tommy Symes races through the rooms looking for the intruder. A moment later, the burglar is back out on the balcony. Fabian sees the glint of a diamond stud in the front of the man's dress shirt as he jumps up onto the balustrade and skips along it. In a single, flowing movement, the man leaps off into nothing. For a moment, Fabian's heart stops beating as he watches the man fly with outstretched arms and legs to land with the agility of an acrobat on the balustrade of the next balcony. His step doesn't falter as he tiptoes along that balustrade too. Fabian sees something fine whip out from the man's hand, flying upwards towards the roof of the neighboring house and catching on the guttering. The man swings into the night, a dark spider rising on an invisible thread. Fabian's heart is in his mouth as he watches the man scamper up the slanting tiles like a monkey moving through the tree canopy. In barely six seconds, the shadowy figure is gone, away over the roof ridge. Despite his disappointment, Fabian is grinning with amazement and admiration. He wouldn't have missed that for the world. Perhaps there's even a part of him that's glad the thief got away. But he's also more determined than ever that next time he will catch him. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary Criminal Investigation Department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Next morning, the duty inspector gets to hear of their misadventures in Green Park. He hauls the two novices over the coals, giving them a sarcastic lesson in policing by the book. You really must forgive me for intruding on your beautiful partnership, he mocks, but I would like to know about all this before it happened, so we could have one or two more men on the scene. The inspector is particularly scathing towards Fabian. You say you saw him, but you can't describe him except he climbed like a cat. He didn't have fur by any chance. Hoping to redeem themselves, the two friends returned to the house in St. James's Place, where they learned that a diamond and amethyst brooch has been stolen, as well as some letters and documents belonging to the owner of the house, Lady Northcote. Examining the balcony, Fabian notices a small but distinctive footprint on the top of the balustrade. It's the tip of a narrow, pointed shoe. The shape suggests patent leather evening shoes, but the discovery of a fuller footprint nearby is intriguing. The speckled appearance of this imprint clearly indicates the shoes are rubber-soled. The combination of formal design and crepe soles is unusual. You'd need to get those made specially, observes Symes. The two friends look at one another. This could be a vital clue. Fabian spends the rest of the day wearing out his own shoe leather as he makes inquiries at all the exclusive stores specializing in handmade shoes. Finally, he gets a breakthrough. A shoemaker in Albemarle Street remembers making a pair of unusual shoes for a customer. Crepe rubber soles on patent leather evening shoes. Barely able to contain his excitement, Fabian asks if the shopkeeper has any details for this eccentric customer. He consults his order book and comes up with a name. R. Rad, 52 Half Moon Street. Convinced that he's on the trail of the elusive burglar, Fabian hotfoots it to Half Moon Street, only to find there is no number 52. The numbers stop at 42. It seems the burglar is given a false address. The trail may have gone cold, but probationer detective Fabian doesn't give up hope. He has the idea of investigating the local bars and lounges. Or perhaps he just needs a drink to revive his spirits. He can't help feeling that he's on the right track. Half Moon Street is located between Park Lane and St. James's Street, the two areas that the cat burglar has been targeting. It's possible that in the swankier establishments, the burglar has been gathering information on the houses and residents in the neighborhood. Perhaps he's even befriended some of his future victims. Alternatively, in the more modest pubs, the thief may have got chatting with butlers and valets on their day off. If he's clever, as Fabian believes he is, he'll have managed to glean from them where the richest pickings are as well as the habits of their wealthy masters and mistresses. So while it's true that the thief gave a false address to the shoemaker, 
Perhaps he teasingly revealed something about himself when he dropped the name of Half Moon Street. Fabian feels like the burglar is taunting him, deliberately leaving a trail of tantalizing clues, confident that he would be able to evade capture just as he leapt across the gap between two balconies last night. He begins to form a picture of his adversary. He's undoubtedly a risk taker, arrogant too. He appreciates the finer things in life, like diamond studs and handmade shoes. His sharp mind has a strong, practical bent to judge from the equipment he was carrying, a tool to force the window and a rope for his getaway. Fabian looks into the face of every man he sees in the bar, wondering, could he be the one? Fabian doesn't see anything that first day, so he takes the decision to come back numerous times over the following week. He becomes a regular fixture in the local bars, in his off-duty hours, of course. So as not to draw attention to himself, he invests in a set of smart evening clothes, the sort that are worn by the swells who haunt the better class of drinking den. It's a pity he can't claim back the laundry bills, but somehow he doubts that the inspector will sign off on the expenditure. Fabian isn't sure exactly what he's looking for each evening as he moves from bar to bar. He's even less confident that he will find it. But he keeps a wary, watchful eye on everyone he encounters. And then, one night, his perseverance pays off. Here's how Fabian tells it in his autobiography. I walked into the range bar. A man passed me. He wore good evening clothes. A diamond sparkled in his laundered shirt bosom. And as he walked, it occurred to me that his shoes were making no noise at all. Glancing down, Fabian notices that the shoes are thin and finely pointed. They exactly match the mental image he is carrying around of the footprint he saw on the balcony of the house in St. James's Place. Fabian watches through the window as the man approaches a taxi rank before deciding to walk. The young detective rushes out and jumps into a cab at the back of the rank. Fabian identifies himself as a police officer and orders the driver to follow the smartly dressed man while he lies down in the back. The taxi tails the man round the corner from Half Moon Street, then into another side street. The driver doesn't slow down as he tells Fabian, he's gone into number 43, Gaff. Right, don't stop, answers Fabian. Keep going to Scotland Yard. Fabian takes the lift to the criminal records office, where he spends an unproductive hour looking through photographs of known burglars. The man he saw is not on file, which means he's never been captured by the police. He's either very clever or very lucky. But at least Fabian has an address for him now. He shares his information with Symes, and the two of them take it to their inspector. This time, they'll play it by the book. Fabian's superiors approve a surveillance operation on the suspect. For days, detectives keep watch from across the street on the house near Half Moon Street. 
Whenever the smartly dressed young man with the crepe-soled shoes and diamond stud leaves, there is a different plain-clothes officer on his tail. A brown, nondescript van is never far away. Hidden inside the van is a team of detectives equipped with a Morse code transmitter linked to Scotland Yard. On the 15th of January, 1925, at around 6.30 in the evening, the subject is seen loitering in a passageway between Green Park and the back garden of a house on Arlington Road. For Symes and Fabian, this feels like deja vu. Fabian's heart is pounding in his chest as he strains to keep eyes on the man. Suddenly, the subject makes a move, disappearing into the garden of one of the houses. There are other noises in the dark. Fabian's fellow detectives moving into position. A dark shadow darts vertically up the side of one of the buildings. The means of ascent is given away by the soft slap of flesh against metal. So this is not a ghost after all, or even a cat. It's just an athletic human being climbing hand over hand up a drainpipe. As on the last occasion, Fabian hears the sound of the burglar trying to force a window. But something seems to go wrong. Or perhaps the thief has sensed that he is not alone. He suddenly abandons his break-in attempt and drops to the ground. He pushes through some bushes to hide in the garden of the overseas club next door. Fabian watches his friend Tommy Symes throw himself at the man while the rest of the detectives close in. They have him surrounded and now they have him in handcuffs. This time for sure, he won't get away. So who is he, this smartly dressed young man, now in police custody on suspicion of multiple burglaries? He identifies himself as Robert Augustus Delaney, aged 29. At around five feet nine inches tall, with clear blue eyes and wavy auburn hair, Delaney has a handsome face and bags of natural charm. Even the detectives who arrested him find it hard not to like him. Beneath his dapper suit, his frame appears slightly built but muscular, without an ounce of excess weight. When he is charged, Delaney appears almost embarrassed. I don't want my friends to know where I am, he says at one point. But then he goes on to say, Let my young lady know where I am. I have been living with her at Park Road for a fortnight in the name of Lane. It's not clear whether he has lied about his name to the young lady or to other people. Either way, it's a further revealing insight into Delaney's relationship with the truth. And yet his touching concern that his girlfriend is notified appears to be genuine. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Delaney makes it clear that he's willing to cooperate with the police. I wish to clear everything up, he says. I will help you all I can. 
With this in mind, he tells the police where they can find the documents he stole from Lady Northcote, discreetly saying, They are of no use to anybody, except Baroness Northcote. As for the jewellery he stole, he says he pawned the brooch for £10, the equivalent of about two weeks' wages for the average working man. It's hardly a fortune, but bear in mind this is just one item from one night's work. The haul from one of the other burglaries in the same area was worth £2,000, enough to buy three averagely priced houses in Britain at the time. Police suspect Delaney is responsible for that one too, but can't prove it. At his trial on the 5th of February 1925, Delaney pleads guilty to a number of charges that include breaking and entering and theft. The charges relate specifically to the burglary of Lady Northcote's house in December 1924 and the attempted break-in at Lord Rutland's house on the 15th of January 1925. Speaking for the prosecution, Mr. Percival Clark describes Delaney as a cat burglar one of the earliest instances of the term on record. The phrase is so unfamiliar that Mr. Clark has to explain it to the judge, Sir Ernest Wilde. They are called cat burglars because they get in at second floor windows by climbing up the outsides of buildings. The explanation provokes a moment of levity in court when Sir Ernest asks, how do these feline fellows do it? Mr. Clark replies, I've not tried myself but I'm told that if you have the proper appliances, it is not so difficult. At any rate, I think you have one of these persons before you now. Despite the jokes, the prosecution are clearly pushing for the maximum possible sentence. They try to build a case that Delaney is part of a gang of Australian and South African thieves responsible for a spate of similar crimes, even suggesting that he is their leader. If the following exchange is anything to go by, no concrete evidence for this is presented. What sort of gang is this? asks Sir Ernest. Mr. Clark replies, a very bad gang who have been doing cat burglaries. The argument is that because there have only been two such cases since Delaney's arrest, he must have played a key role in the gang. There is another, far more likely explanation, that Robert Delaney was a one-man crime wave. The police present further evidence of Delaney's dishonesty and criminality. One detective states that Delaney, who describes himself as a civil engineer, claims to have been educated at Jesus College, Cambridge. Inquiries showed that this was not true, says the detective dryly. The same detective continues, in September of last year, he was charged with living on the immoral earnings of a woman. At which point Delaney cries out angrily, I object to that statement. The detective admits that the prisoner was acquitted of that charge, but was subsequently found guilty of passing nine forged checks in the name of Captain Craddock. Although his accomplice in this fraud received a prison sentence, Delaney managed to stay out of jail because it was his first offence. At around the same time, Delaney filed for bankruptcy, but he failed to appear at the hearing, and so he was sentenced to a month in prison for contempt of court. Taking all this into account, Sir Ernest Wilde sentences Delaney to three and a half years penal servitude. 
The sentence reflects the crimes Delaney is supposed to have committed, as well as those he was actually convicted of. The prosecution's strategy has paid off. After the sentencing, more details of Delaney's life and career emerge. Newspapers describe him as a swell mobsman, a certain kind of criminal who dresses fashionably in order to pass as a member of the upper classes. The account given in Reynolds' Illustrated News on Sunday the 8th of February is typical. The paper carries a photograph of a youthful Delaney immaculately dressed in evening wear with starched winged collar and a white bow tie. His hair is worn in a high, bouffant way, and there's a wistful expression to his face. He looks like a character from an Evelyn War novel. The headline reads, Astonishing Life History of Cat Burglar. Beneath that, a series of subheads hint at the sensational details. Daredevil who lured women, spent wife's fortune and took to crime, betrayed girl, story of Robert Delaney, a handsome scoundrel. According to the article, Delaney claims to be the son of a wealthy South African merchant, although elsewhere he is described his father as a landowner with an interest in a gold mining concern. He has also claimed that his father left him a fortune worth £23,000. The truth is a little more complicated. In all the articles written about Delaney at the time of his trial, his age is given as 29, which would mean he was born in 1895. However, when he enlists for the army in 1914, he gives the year of his birth as 1891, making him four years older. He also says he was born in Dublin, not South Africa. There's a further discrepancy. On his enlistment papers, he gives his middle name as Aloysius, not Augustus. These are trivial, even pointless inconsistencies. But we get the impression that Delaney is writing his story as he goes along, refining details to suit his audience or to better reflect his image of himself. The confusion between truth and lies continues with his war record itself. Delaney claims to have fought at the Battle of the Somme, which took place in November 1916. In fact, he was declared a deserter 11 months earlier. Delaney also claims to have been wounded in a liquid fire attack, after which he was sent back to England to recuperate. Hospital records show that he was actually treated for venereal disease. In 1915, Delaney meets and marries a young, attractive widow from Lincolnshire called Kitty Sharp. Kitty is the daughter of a wealthy farmer and a landowner. She'd been left £22,000 by her first husband and inherits a further 8000 when her father dies. This is the true source of Delaney's fortune not any inheritance he received from his father. During his marriage to Kitty, Delaney does his best to project the image of a gentleman farmer. He spends £22,500 of Kitty's money buying one of the finest farms in Lincolnshire, as the property is described. But whatever else he is, Delaney is no farmer. He quickly grows bored of agriculture and turns to hunting, 
paying over the odds for a stable of poor quality horses. He gains a reputation locally as a braggart. His neighbours shun him, so Delaney spends most of his weekends in London enjoying the high life. By 1922, after a series of disastrous business decisions coupled with his dissolute lifestyle, Delaney has completely squandered his wife's money. He spent money like water, drank heavily, and consorted with women, is how the Illustrated News puts it. According to Delaney's own version of events, told to Thompson's Weekly News in 1934, he ripped through £30,000 in just three months on a spending spree in Europe. He describes standing in his hotel room in Paris. I turned out my pockets. Not a bean. I was dead broke. As a result of Delaney's behaviour, Kitty suffers a nervous breakdown and is admitted to a nursing home for treatment. When she gets out, Delaney calmly announces he's leaving her for her niece. He gives Kitty 20 pounds of the approximately 1,500 pounds left of her own money and advises her to move to Skegness to look for a job. Delaney and Kitty's niece end up in Westcliff-on-Sea in Essex, where for a time they run a boarding house together. But it's an abusive relationship. According to the Illustrated News, he assaulted her frequently, and at times the boarders had to come between them to prevent him doing her serious harm. Kitty's niece falls ill under the stress of living with Delaney, just as her aunt had, and the business starts to fail. Delaney comes up with a typically criminal solution to his financial problems. He burns the place down. Although it seems the insurance payout is not as much as he had hoped for. Kitty's niece has had enough. She leaves him and heads back to Lincolnshire. It's now that Delaney moves to London and that his criminal career really takes off. If we can believe Delaney's own account published in Thompson's Weekly News, his fall into criminality began back when he was destitute in Paris. There, he made the acquaintance of a number of English and American men who, noting his obvious attractiveness to the opposite sex, persuaded him to take a job in a dancing club, partnering wealthy women. The plan was that Delaney would make a note of the women's jewels, as well as where they live and their comings and goings. He passed this information on to his new friends, who, it turned out, were a gang of jewel thieves. To reward him for his trouble, Delaney received a cut of the takings. And so, when Delaney is forced to live off his wits in London, he falls back on the skills he learnt in Paris and begins to frequent the dance floors of all the major hotels. His good looks and charming manners make him popular with the ladies, some of whom even invite him into their own homes. This time, there's going to be no gang. Delaney resolves to become a gentleman burglar, carrying out the robberies himself. He describes his first job in some detail. The victim is a titled lady of a certain age. In Delaney's words, she was one of those women anxious to have the last kick out of life 
before it was too late. Delaney works his way into her affections, becoming a regular visitor to her home and in the process learning where she keeps her jewels. He remembers how, as a boy, he had climbed up the waste pipe of the family home to get in through his bedroom window. That's what he'll do, he decides. As he puts it, So far as I knew, this was something new in burglary in this country. Why not have a shot at it? There was an element of sport in it which appealed to me. He waits for an evening when the lady of the house is not at home. His plan is to go in through one of the servants' bedroom windows on the top floor, 40 feet up. So he chooses a time when the entire household is in the kitchen getting ready for dinner. The climb did not present any great difficulties, he claims. The toes of my evening dress shoes were very supple and allowed me to get a good leverage on the wall. Tightening my grip on the pipe, I found that I had lost nothing of the prowess of my boyhood days. Foot by foot, I worked my way up till at last I was at the top. One mistake, and I would have crashed to certain death on the concrete below. Delaney tells how he used a special gadget to slip open the window catch. Next moment, I was inside, he says. Delaney then coolly walks downstairs to his lady friend's bedroom, where he fills his pockets with her jewels. His account continues. Pausing at the top of the stairs to light a cigarette, I walk down, opened the front door of the house in the absence of a butler and walked along the street. I hailed a taxi and drove back to my hotel. The next day, he meets up with a notorious fence who pays him £600 for a string of pearls, just part of his haul. A new career begins. By living as a man about town and keeping myself to myself, I had a long run but it was a very enterprising young tech who rumbled me in the end and sent me away. He doesn't name the enterprising young tech in question. It seems a fair assumption that it's Robert Fabian. That said, there are a number of discrepancies between Delaney's version of events and Fabian's, and at times it's hard to reconcile both men's accounts with contemporary newspaper reports. As always with Robert Augustus Delaney, the truth is impossible to pin down, and the myth is far more enticing. Take the documents which Delaney stole from Lady Northcote. In his account, he claims they are love letters. The writer, he says, was evidently a young man, and his love had inspired him to put all his soul into words that filled me with romance. The way Delaney presents it The letters provoke a crisis of conscience. What had I done? I was not only a burglar, but a cad. He determines to return the letters to Lady Northcote, posting them through her letterbox at night. But we know from newspaper accounts that the police recovered the documents from Piccadilly Circus tube station cloakroom. We also know that they were in an envelope marked Instructions in the Event of Death which suggests that they were legal papers relating to her ladyship's inheritance planning. Besides, if they were love letters, it's far more likely that Delaney would have tried to use them to blackmail Lady Northcote. Chapter 
Delaney is sent to Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. When Sir Ernest Wilde sentenced him, he had expressed the hope that at the end of his term, Delaney would use his talents, whether acrobatic or otherwise, in an honest way. Unfortunately, Delaney ignores this advice. Just two weeks after his early release in 1927, he's back in trouble with the law. The crime is burglary and motor theft. His victim is one William Gilding, who happens to be the man Delaney once sold his Lincolnshire farm to, and against whom he seems to harbour a grudge. The job ends in fiasco, however, when Delaney and his accomplice drive the car they have stolen, loaded with Gilding's safe and other possessions, into a ditch, where they are picked up by the local police. Desperate to avoid arrest, Delaney pulls a revolver on one of the officers, but the gun is later found to be empty. The trial is held at the Derbyshire Assizes before Mr. Justice Swift. The two suspects are denied legal aid, so Delaney is obliged to conduct his own defence. Perhaps, unwisely, he puts himself on the stand. In one farcical exchange, he is asked by the prosecuting barrister, why did you put a revolver against P.C. Allen's ribs? Delaney turns to the judge. Am I forced to answer that question? To which the judge replies, no, I don't think you need. But he then asks Delaney, did you put the revolver in P.C. Allen's ribs? Uh, yes, I did, my lord, admits Delaney. Delaney is sentenced to seven years' penal servitude. The severity of the sentence reflects the involvement of a firearm, even if it wasn't loaded, and the fact that Delaney committed the crime while out on license. On his release in 1933, Delaney immediately picks up his life of crime again, though he manages to evade capture for a whole year. Delaney is in his early 40s now, and when he suffers a bad fall while on a job, he starts to wonder if he isn't getting too old for the cat burglary business. His solution is not to give up his life of crime, but to recruit and train a 16-year-old boy as his apprentice. In July 1934, Delaney remarries. His new wife is a woman called Olive, a 32-year-old waitress who had once been on the stage. But it appears that Delaney was never divorced from Kitty, and so when he is arrested for breaking and entering in November 1934, he is also charged with bigamy. A further charge of inciting a boy to commit burglary is added to the list. The judge is Sir Percival Clark, who, as plain Mr. Clark, had prosecuted Delaney in 1925 for the Lady Northcote and Lord Rutland burglaries. Delaney's heart must have sunk. Sir Percival pronounces Delaney a menace to society and sentences him to nine years penal servitude. It's a terrible blow for Delaney, who is transferred to Dartmoor to begin his sentence. The next time Delaney tastes freedom is in November 1940. Once again, he is released early, possibly for good behavior, as the governor of Dartmoor had described him as a model prisoner. The terms of Delaney's early release are that he mustn't be convicted for any offence again, otherwise he'll have another 1,097 days added to whatever sentence he receives. 
but it doesn't take long before he finds himself in the dock again, this time for felony and receiving stolen goods. In 1941, he is sentenced to three terms of three years. A pattern is emerging of brief bursts of freedom during which Delaney gets up to his old tricks again and long spells behind bars. We next hear about him in 1945 when, just six months after getting out of Pentonville prison, he is charged with multiple crimes, including stealing 6,750 pounds worth of jewelry from a house in Haywards Heath, Sussex. That would have been enough for him to buy four averagely priced houses, if only he'd got away with it. This next incarceration will be his last, as Delaney will die in Parkhurst Prison on the 14th of December 1948 at the age of 53, or possibly 57, depending on which of his two dates of birth you believe. In his earlier career, at least, Delaney is often compared to A.J. Raffles, the fictional gentleman thief created by E.W. Homan. Raffles is a dashing character, mixing in the highest circles and following a sophisticated code of honor, befitting someone who played cricket for the gentlemen of England. But in reality, Delaney's life was far from glamorous. At his many court appearances, his address is often given as no fixed abode, and his treatment of his wife and her niece is hardly honorable. From the age of 30, he spent more time in prison than out. He was a typical career criminal, the classic old lag, rather than a suave anti-hero. As he got older, his health failed, and he found it harder and harder to pull off his gymnastic feats of daring. We can almost feel his aching joints and trembling arms as he hauled himself up a drainpipe for his last few jobs. And what Delaney never seemed to realize was that the police were always watching him every time he was released, just like the young Robert Fabian back in the day. The legend of Robert Augustus Delaney, the sprucely dressed cat burglar, may still have the power to fascinate us. The truth, perhaps, is a little less appealing. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. In 2010, the body of young MI6 agent Gareth Williams is found locked inside a hole door. Scotland Yard are called in to investigate, but from the beginning, it's clear that MI6 want detectives to keep their distance. Some claim that Gareth somehow climbed into the bag and died by accident, but that doesn't explain how it got locked from the outside. Is Gareth Williams' death the result of a foreign intelligence hit? And if so, how can Scotland Yard investigate it without upsetting the most powerful espionage agencies in the world? Scotland 
Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.